I want us to look together this morning at Mark chapter 9, and I want to read verses 14 down through verse 29. So you follow along in your Bibles as I read. <clears throat> now when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. I'd like to preach to you today about a father's faith. Heavenly Father, we look to you today to be for us what we need. To be a teacher, to be an instructor, so that we might truly understand what you have given us in your word today, and that it might help us to have greater faith in you, and that then through our lives you would get greater honor. And we thank you for giving your son Jesus to heal all of our ailments and to cure and to fix all of our problems. May we learn to just trust and to give you the praise that you deserve when you work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's nothing that feels quite so awful as seeing your child suffer and knowing that there is nothing that you can do about it. If you've ever been in a situation like that, then you understand the utter helplessness 
that you feel in that situation. Suppose then that you took your child to an expert who was supposed to be a specialist in fixing your child's problem. But then the expert was unable to solve the issue. Your disappointment would be doubled and you'd be on the verge of despair. If you've ever been in a situation like that, or if you can even imagine a situation like that, then you can begin to understand what the father that we see in Mark chapter 9 must have been feeling the day that he came to Jesus. His son was possessed by a devil, and there was nothing this father could do for him. So he brought his son to Jesus' disciples, whom he had heard had had great success in dealing with such cases and bringing a cure and casting out devils. But his disciples could do nothing for him. And he was on the verge of despair when Jesus arrived. But when he asked Jesus to heal his son, Jesus responded by saying, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. That was not the answer the man was looking for. And you can hear the emotion in his voice as the Bible says, with tears he cried out and he said to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And what I love about this story is that Jesus did help his unbelief that day. He healed that man's son. And that man's faith grew that day because he learned that faith is not just believing that God can do whatever you need, but it's believing that God is the only one who can do whatever you need and believing that He will meet your needs when you have faith in Him. Let's notice some details from this story this morning. Number one, note with me the disturbance that we see at the very beginning. Now, earlier in Mark chapter 9, we have the record of the transfiguration of Christ. This is when Jesus went up on top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And the Bible tells us that He was transfigured. He was changed before their very eyes. His clothes changed to bright white. His very countenance began to shine. And there appeared to Him Moses and Elijah talking to Him. And as they were standing there, Peter and James and John were in awe, of course, of what they saw. And of course, good old Peter, he was the one who had something to say. And he spoke up and he said, Lord, let's make three tabernacles. Let's make three tents. And let's just stay here a while. And we'll make one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. And we'll just have a, a holy camp out here. And that's when the cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud that said, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. And when that experience was over, Jesus told His disciples not to tell anybody what they had seen for the time being. And they come down off of that mountain and they walk into this scene that we've just read about. Jesus comes down and in verse number 14, it says, He came to His disciples. That would have been the other nine that had been left behind. And there was this big crowd around them and there was this commotion. There was a discussion and it was obvious that there was some kind of a disturbance going on here as the scribes were questioning the disciples about something. 
Again, this was the nine that were left behind, and, but they were being interrogated by the scribes. What were they being asked about? Well, we're given hints, but we're not given anything specific. From the story, we know that they had previous to this been unable to heal this man's son. And so it could have been that the scribes were questioning them about why could you not do this? Why were you not able to do this when you're supposed to be the follower of this great leader, Jesus? And so on and so forth. We do know that the scribes frequently were trying to discredit Jesus and his ministry. And so it's reasonable that we conclude that this was not a friendly conversation, that it was probably very contentious when Jesus showed up. And when Jesus came in, verse 15 says, that when all the people beheld him, they were greatly amazed, and they, running to him, saluted him. All eyes were on Jesus when he walked up. And in verse 16, it's almost like he walks right through the crowd and walks right up to the scribes, and he addresses them directly and says, What question ye with them? Now, what I like about this part of the story is that how Jesus, when he walked up, immediately took charge of the situation. He immediately assessed what was going on and took over this whole incident. And I also am struck by the fact, the contrast here between what he was just experiencing, communion with the Father, with Moses and Elijah on top of the mountains of transfiguration, and now he's got to walk into this mess. And I think it's details like that that God puts in the Bible for us to, to assure us and to comfort us that Jesus does indeed know what it feels like to be human. Because it's often that way in life, is it not? That at one moment we have a mountaintop experience, the next moment we're walking into another mess. Jesus frequently had to deal with that. He was no stranger to the, the sudden and incessant flow of problems. But I love how the Lord Jesus Christ did not shy away from it. He did not allow it to agitate him or to, you know, get him all bent out of shape. He just walked in and with confident humility took charge of the situation. And because Jesus took charge of the situation, it took a whole different direction. It went from one of being a contentious squabble to being a display of God's amazing power. And we'll see as the story goes on how this plays out, but let's just, let's just hang a thought right here as we, as we start this story. That you're always better off letting Jesus take charge. Always. I, I know we're often tempted to think, well, I can fix this one, I got this one, and, and save the really big stuff for God, you know? But the truth of the matter is, every problem we have, we are better off letting Jesus take charge of it. We see the disturbance. Number two, notice the details of this disturbance from verses 17 and 18. Jesus had addressed the scribes with a question, what question ye with them? They didn't even get a chance to answer when a man steps up from the crowd and addresses Jesus and says, Master, I've brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And he goes on to describe the ailment, the malady that this, this, this son this, uh, of this man had. Here was a man who had a problem that he could not solve. 
His son was possessed by a devil, and this devil was torturing him. As a result of this, uh, this possession of this devil, the boy had been rendered deaf and unable to speak, and oftentimes unable to do anything uh, except to, as it's described in verse number 18, be torn to foam to gnash with his teeth to pine away. The problem that this man has was not his problem directly, it was his son's problem, but this problem was robbing his son of, of basically any quality of life. And there was nothing this father could do about it. And so he had brought his son to the specialists, Jesus' disciples, because no doubt he had heard how they could heal such people, but found out that they could not. And now he finds himself stuck in the middle of this contention between the religious leaders, the scribes, and the disciples of Jesus. And he's just stuck in the middle of all of this. Can you imagine what it must have been like for this father? What must he have been feeling at this point? So helpless, so utterly hopeless, so almost to the point of complete despair. To put it simply, he must have been very disappointed. And I think about this man's problem. You know, unless you are a very selfish person, your suffering really does not affect you as much as the suffering of somebody you love, especially if there's nothing you can do for that person. Most of us, we can deal with things and it's frustrating and it's hard for us, but we can kind of, we kind of feel okay dealing with it. But if it's somebody we love, like a spouse or a child or other relative or a very close friend, and we're having to watch them suffer, knowing there's nothing in our power to, to, to be able to alleviate that suffering, it's just, it's just worse by magnitudes. And that's what this man was dealing with. And he's seeking a, a solution to the problem and finding none. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. This man's hope was deferred. He had hoped his son would be healed, but he hadn't been healed yet. He was, feeling, he was facing the disappointment that comes when you are not wanting something selfishly for you, but wanting something good for someone else and not getting it. He'd not been able to find a solution to the problem, but now Jesus showed up. And with Jesus' presence came a renewed hope. With Jesus' presence came a, a, another chance to see His Son heal. Surely, He thought Jesus could heal His Son. Surely, Jesus would heal His Son. And so He comes to Jesus and explains the problem. Notice thirdly, the deficiency the deficiency that Jesus addresses in the following verses. Look at Jesus' response in verse number 19. He answereth him, that is the man that had addressed him, the father of the son, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, if, you're, if, you're, if you stop and think about that for a minute, doesn't it seem kind of like a cold and a callous answer? Because this man came to Jesus and said, It's my son, Lord. He's got this problem, and I brought him here, and your disciples couldn't heal it. And Jesus looked at him and said, 
You're a faithless generation. Not only was he addressing this man, though, he was addressing the entire crowd there. Everybody gathered. They were all guilty of a lack of faith. You're a faithless generation, he said. Now, Jesus was not being unkind or uncompassionate or uncaring. What he was doing is he was addressing the real problem of the situation. The real problem was not even that this child was possessed of a devil. The real problem here was that there was a lack of faith of all parties involved. The scribes lacked faith. They didn't want to hear anything Jesus had to say. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe that his teaching was the correct teaching. They didn't believe anything about Jesus. They lacked total faith. The disciples lacked faith. Jesus will address that later when they say, why why could we not cast him out? And as Matthew records it, Jesus said, because of your unbelief. The disciples lacked faith. And this father lacked faith. He admits it himself when he prays, Lord, help thou mine unbelief. The problem here was a lack of faith. And so he says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? What does he mean by that? Well, to put it more, maybe more of a vernacular, he was basically saying, what's it going to take for you to believe? When are you going to learn to just have faith? Oh, faithless generation. The deficiency here was a lack of faith. And so they brought the young boy, the son, to Jesus. And immediately what the father had described was displayed right before them as he, the spirit tearing me fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked one question, how long ago since it is, this came unto him? And he said, of a child. Now, Jesus didn't ask that question for his own sake. He asked it for our sake because Jesus knows all. But what, what, what he was doing here was establishing the magnitude of the problem. That this problem did not just happen yesterday. That this has been going on for a long time. Exactly how long, we don't know. But long enough that every other possible avenue of healing, every other possible solution had been exhausted. That's what Jesus is establishing here, that this is a problem that was beyond everyone's ability except God's. And so as the Father tells Jesus how long and talks about the problem a little more at the end of verse 22, before before we look at his final words, notice how it says in verse 22, oftentimes it casts him into the fire and into the waters. This was a life-threatening situation. Like this, this devil had literally caused this boy to try and burn himself alive or to try and drown himself. How many times had the father had to reach and snatch his son away from the fire? How many times had the father had to jump into the lake and pull his son out? This man had a real problem. And so he cries at the end of verse 22, if thou canst do anything, If you have any power at all, Jesus, please have compassion on us and help us. 
This man's cry was as sincere as it can get. He knew he needed Jesus' help. And so Jesus responds in verse number 23, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. I'll be honest, that's a hard response for me to read. Because that sounds a lot like Jesus is putting the burden back on this father and saying, if you can believe, then it's possible. Had this father not done enough yet? Had he not sought enough solutions? Had he not tried hard enough? And now for Jesus to say, in essence, it's not up to me, it's up to you. If thou canst believe... If you can have faith, then yes, your son will be healed. Let's talk for a moment about what, what faith really is. Because there's a lot of misconception today about what faith really is. The Bible definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11 and verse number 6. That verse says that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Biblical faith in God is simply belief that God is who He says He is and that God will do what He says He will do. That's biblical faith. See, a lot of people today teach faith in faith. You know, if you just have enough faith, well, then all your problems will be solved and you'll have all the money that you need and you'll never have any health problems again and you're, everything will be perfect in life if you just have faith because that's what faith will do for you. And there's a lot of teaching and preaching about what faith will do with you and the problem is that's faith in faith. It's not about what faith can do for us. It's about what God can do for us. Faith in God. As we apply that faith to specific problems, it translates to this. That God can and God will meet our needs. God can meet our needs because He is who He says He is. He is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, creator God of the universe. There is nothing that is too hard for Him. Therefore, He can meet our needs. He will meet our needs because He has promised that He would. He said He would, therefore, we must believe that He will. So, faith is believing God is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do. As we apply it to a specific problem, it means that He can solve the problem and He will solve the problem. I think oftentimes our struggle, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior and we've been saved for some time, we've learned a lot about God, we've seen God do a lot of things. Our struggle many times is not with the can. Can God do it? We know in our minds and we believe in our hearts, yes, God can. We know He can. He can part the Red Sea or He can walk on the water. He can do whatever. Our struggle oftentimes is with the second part of that equation, the will. 
We know God can, but we doubt if He will. How can we know what God will do? Honestly, consider that question for a moment. Can any of us definitively say, I know what God is going to do? Unless He has revealed it to us directly in His Word, we can't say that about specific instances of life. I can't say, I know God will do this in this specific situation unless somehow God has put it to us in writing in His Word. And so there becomes a struggle with us with our faith because we mistakenly narrow faith down to God doing what we want. And when we do that, we are in essence turning God into the genie from Aladdin's magic lamp. You know that story, don't you? Aladdin's lamp, you rub the lamp, the genie pops out and gives you three wishes. But you can't wish for more wishes. That's against the rule, right? But you get your three wishes... And so you can pick whatever you want and wish for that thing and the genie will grant you your wish. And it is a very misguided faith that reduces God to that kind of a concept. That, God, that, that faith is believing that God will do what I want. That's not biblical faith. But when we have that kind of a mindset, here's what happens. God does not always do what we want. If you haven't figured that out, and I say this in all kindness, just understand right now, God does not always do what we want. And for that, we ought to be grateful. Because there are times where we want things that are not best. And we'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. But when our faith is this kind of faith that God is going to give me what I wish for, and then God doesn't give me what I wish for, what happens to our faith? It's shattered. Well, what is it then? Well, I thought God would give me what I wanted. God didn't give me what I want. Did God break His word? Is God not who He says He is? Will He not do what He says He will do? But the problem is not on God's end. The problem was on my end. I had a misunderstanding of what faith really was. If our faith amounted to believing that God would do just whatever we wanted, whatever we thought was best, then I say it is good that we lose such faith because it's not biblical faith. That kind of faith limits us to getting less than the best because we do not always know what is best. And I will tell you, there are things that God does that I would say emphatically, that was bad, only to later find out, oh, wow. God had a much bigger plan than I could have ever even imagined. And somehow he turned that thing around for a greater good than I could have ever even imagined. But when we limit ourselves to just what we think is best, we limit ourselves to getting second best. Because our best is never as good as God's best. It's never as good as God's best. What this man wanted was an instant cure. Jesus was going to give him the cure, but it wasn't going to be instant. He was going to take him through a process and the end result of that is that not only would the man's son be healed, the man's faith would grow exponentially. Don't settle for second best. 
Have faith in God, not in your ability to wish for something good. Biblical faith is believing that God will do what He knows is best. And so we note number four, the father's despair. I put myself in this man's shoes and I'm, I'm right there with him. He cries out to Jesus with tears in his eyes and says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Have you ever been there before? You ever been in that kind of a situation? You are so torn. You have faith as best as you know how, but yet you're still plagued with doubts and you're just, you're, you're in that, that very difficult and confusing position. Jesus had basically told the father that it was up to him whether his son would be healed. This man had been dealing with the problem for years. He'd done everything that he knew to do. He'd come to the disciples because he knew the problem was beyond him. But now he was being told it all hinged on him. That was a huge burden to bear. And his words are, they seem contradictory, but they describe how we feel all the time. Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. What did he mean by that? I, I think he meant that he believed that Jesus could, but he needed Jesus' help to know that he would. Now note the irony of a prayer, the prayer here. He is asking in faith, requesting assistance for a lack of faith. He's asking in faith, requesting assistance for a lack of faith. Sometimes we're at that point where it's just like, this doesn't really make sense, but Lord, I believe that you'll help me in my unbelief. And notice how God honored that prayer in this story. This man's faith was strengthened. In Matthew's account of this, Jesus later uses the, that example of the mustard seed in explaining the situation to His disciples. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, mustard seed is very small, but when you plant it, it grows into a big shrub. And what this man is doing is he's coming to God with his little mustard seed of faith. It's not much, but I've got a little mustard seed. Lord, I believe... Help thou mine unbelief. Take the mustard seed, Lord, and grow it into a giant shrub. And let me say that this is the prayer to pray when you are plagued with doubts. There are going to be times where there are more questions than answers. There are going to be times where nothing seems to make sense, where everything appears to be upside down. And there are going to be times where you are just racked with doubts. During those times, latch on to what you do know. It's kind of like a life jacket. If you go boating or rafting or something like that, oftentimes you're required to wear a life jacket. I know how to swim rather well. I'm not an expert by any, any stretch, but in a you know life-threatening situation, I can stay afloat and at least move a little bit through the water, hopefully get to safety. But you know, if I'm going to be going out on a boat in deep water away from shore, I'm going to wear the life jacket. And if something terrible happens and I get thrown into the water, 
There's going to be a lot of me that's underwater. Okay, that's not a fat joke. It's just the fact. Okay. It's going to be a lot of me underwater, but with that life jacket on, it's going to keep my, my head above water so that I can breathe and so that I can stay afloat until rescue comes. All right, this is a life jacket kind of prayer. I don't know a lot. I'm in the middle of a whole lot of doubts and I'm on the verge of drowning, but there are some things I do know and I'm going to hang on to those and they'll keep me afloat until the Lord lifts me up out of this situation. Latch on to the things that you do know. Sometimes it's good just to quote Scripture to yourself. Sometimes you need to do it repeatedly. You need to go back to the Bible and you need to say, but we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to the purpose. And then when the other half of your brain says, what, what does that even mean? You just say it again. It means we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and who are called according to His purpose. And when the other half of your brain wants to argue, you just keep quoting the verse. Sometimes you go to Job and you say to yourself, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Well, it doesn't feel like it right now because you're in the middle of the fire. But that's okay because this is what God says. It's what I know. Sometimes it's Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's hard to do when you're in the middle of the slaying. When the lashes are coming down, when the pain is being inflicted to say, I'm going to trust God anyway. Sometimes you just have to latch on to those things and say, I believe Lord, help my unbelief. Sometimes you got to go back to Psalm 119, 68. God is good. The Lord is good and doeth good. Teach me thy statutes. I don't know how this works in this situation. It doesn't make any sense. Everything seems bad. Everything seems wrong. But God says that He's good and He does good. And you just keep telling yourself that until the Lord lifts you out of the water. That was this father's cry, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And so notice number five, the deliverance. As the father cries out to Jesus once again, the crowd came running together in verse 25. And when Jesus saw it, the Bible says he rebuked the foul spirit. And immediately this demon came out of this, this boy crying and rending him sore and leaving him for dead. In fact, as he lay there, those who came upon him thought he was dead and said so. He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand. See, Jesus wasn't done just casting the Spirit out. He wasn't just going to leave him there to recover as best he could. No, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And I don't know exactly how it looked, but in my mind's eye, as he took this boy up by the hand, maybe he took the father's hand and brought them together and sent them on their way. You know, in this story, sometimes we're the father. We're watching someone suffer and there's nothing we can do and we're doing everything in our power but it's all failing and, and we're just totally frustrated to the point of despair. 
Sometimes we're like the child in the story. The affliction is ours and it's totally out of our control. It's left us practically senseless. But it is the hand of Jesus that cures all ills. It's what raised this child up. It was the hand of Jesus that cured the leper. It was the hand of Jesus that rescued Peter from drowning when he sunk under the waves. It was the hand of Jesus that was pierced so that we could be saved from our sins and healed from our ultimate sickness and rescued from hell. By His stripes we are healed. And Jesus brought deliverance that day, not just to the boy who was possessed of the devil, but to the father who was plagued by doubts. They were delivered. Trust yourself to Jesus' hands. 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 for a moment. Philippians chapter 4. You will never be disappointed when you trust yourself to the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4. Notice verses 6 and 7. It says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse number 7 is a promise. It's a promise of God's peace. God's peace guarding us, keeping us. Our, Our hearts and our minds through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a peace that the world cannot understand and that we cannot fully explain. It passes all understanding. But it's a promise that God will give us that peace. But the premise is verse number 6, which says that we're to be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, if there is a lack of peace in your life, if verse 7 is not describing you right now, then it's because you haven't been doing verse 6. So let's kind of reverse engineer this. If, there's, no, if you're, there's a lack of peace in your heart, if you can't say that it's guarding and keeping your heart, God's peace is, is evident and real in your life, even though everything around you may be in turmoil and there may be just you know disaster everywhere, that inside you have this, this calm assurance that God's in control and it's all going to be according to His plan for His good and our glory. Then let's go to verse 6. If you don't have that, are you even letting your request be made known unto God? Have you even prayed about it? You say, well, yes, I've prayed about it. Okay, well, then let's go another step deeper. How have you prayed about it? Because this verse tells us to do it in a specific way, prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Sometimes our prayers are nothing more than complaints. We go to God and we complain about the problem and ask Him to fix it like we want it fixed. 
That's not the kind of prayer that leads to verse 7. It is prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. It's going to God, asking Him to do what He knows is best and to do it with a grateful heart that, Lord, I don't know why I'm in this situation or why this is happening, but I'm thankful that I know that You know what You're doing. Okay, I'm praying. Well, how are you praying? Are you praying this way? Or are you doing what the first phrase of verse 6 says? Being careful and anxious and worrisome. You're fretting and you're worried and you're going to God and it's just kind of an, an outlet, a vent for you. You want to vent your frustrations to the Lord. That's not the kind of prayer that leads to verse 7. True prayer that brings peace is a prayer that leaves it all in God's hands, that trusts it all to the hand of Jesus. And so this father and this son found deliverance from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 17 as we close. We notice our final point here, what I'm going to call the debriefing the debriefing. As you're turning to Matthew 17, let me reread it from Mark's account, verses 28 and 29. When he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he saith unto them, This kind cometh forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. In Matthew chapter 17, we have a, a little bit lengthier of an, of a, of an account of, of this conversation. Look at verse number 19. Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And so there, there was this private conversation a short while after this event in which these disciples came to Jesus and they were bothered because they had tried to, to cast this, this devil out and they couldn't. And so they asked Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief, because of your lack of faith. If you had enough faith, you could do things that seem impossible, but you lacked faith. And this particular problem was such of a, of such a magnitude that it required greater faith than you had. This kind cometh not forth but by prayer and fasting. He mentions prayer and fasting, Jesus does, as spiritual disciplines that grow our faith. Faith that is weak must be exercised to grow. We think about prayer and fasting and time... Is, is limiting here, I can't go into great detail, but both are expressions of dependence on God. When you're praying as you ought, you're saying, God, I, I, I can't do it, I need you. When you're fasting, you're saying physically, I, I'm so weak, I can't even go a day, a couple hours, <laughs> without food before I'm weak and I'm starving and I'm grouchy and I'm, ah! It's just a reminder of how weak we are. And Jesus said that it's those kinds of disciplines that teach us what it means to truly trust God. Are we really serious about having faith enough to do that? 
And so the debriefing here was simple. The reason that you failed was because you lacked faith. Your faith needs to grow. The father learned that. The whole multitude learned that. The disciples learned that. That our faith needs to grow. I want to conclude by asking and hopefully answering a question drawn from this story. And some of the things that I've said previously. The question I want to answer is, how can we pray in faith if it's not possible for us to know what is truly best? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know exactly what the best outcome is in this situation, so how am I supposed to pray in faith for something specific? Have you ever wrestled with that? Let me give you some, some biblical truths that I think will help us as we are seeking to pray in faith and seeking to have greater faith in what God will do. Number one, how can we have greater faith given our limits of understanding and ability? Number one, be humble and submissive enough so that you don't mistakenly believe that what you think is best is actually best. Humility and submission. That's the first First key. There are things that at times we will be so convinced this is the best thing. And even at those times, though, we have to be humble enough to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Because God knows all. We only know some. James 4.3 says, You ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Psalm 106 verse 15 says that the of the Israelites, the Lord granted them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Not everything we think is good and right is truly God's best. Number two, how can we grow our faith given our limitations? Number two, walk closely with God so that His desires become your desires. Psalm 37 and verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. We need to walk closely with God so that our desires come in line with His. And by the way, don't get that backwards. It's not about God wanting to do what you want. It's about you wanting to do what God wants. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God will put desires in your heart that He wants to be there. It may take time. He may have to take you through a process. But as you walk closely with God, your desires will come in line with His more and more. Number three, how does our faith grow given our limitations? Number three, trust God even when you're disappointed. When God seemingly says no, don't question God. Trust Him. You didn't get what you want. That's a frustration. That's a disappointment. Fair, valid, but don't doubt God. Trust Him. Lean not into thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. And then number four, how do we grow our faith given our limitations? When we are tempted to doubt, remind ourselves of what we know to be true. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When you're tempted to doubt, remind yourself of what you know to be true. Don't focus on what you don't know. 
Focus on what you do. Focus on what God has said about who He is and about what He'll do. Remind yourself. For the rest of this father's life, he would always remember the day he prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, and saw the Lord Jesus Christ answer that prayer by healing his son and doing for him what he could not do for himself and what no one else could do for him. He learned that day that Jesus could and Jesus would do what was best. And I'm not going to say this man never doubted again, but I am going to say that when he was tempted to doubt, he could always look back and see what Jesus did that day and be reminded of what true faith is. Don't doubt that whatever's happening in your life is God's best for you. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be happening to you. Don't despair when you don't understand. Let God's infinite wisdom be your support and your lack of understanding being a reminder of what a blessing it is to have an almighty, all-knowing God to depend upon. Let God grow your faith. Heavenly Father, I thank You for giving us Your Son who lived on this earth and demonstrated to us what a life of faith really looks like. And I'm reminded of what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It is the faith of Jesus that we seek to model in our own life. And Lord, I believe there are many in here today that would cry along with the Father in Mark chapter 9 and say, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. God, I pray that you would honor that prayer today and that you would grow our faith in you. Help us, Lord, to believe not only that you can, but that you will help us. Help us to have humility and be submissive and trust you to do what you know is best when you know it's best to do it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.